0: DW, World in Progress.
1: Welcome to World in Progress. I'm Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're traveling to the North Pole alongside reporters Sven Weniger and Jön Freienhagen, who recently boarded a ship headed in that direction. The ship, the Commandant Charcot, is unique in more ways than one. Many of the passengers on board are taking a -a one-of-a-kind luxury cruise, exploring the vast polar landscape from on board the icebreaker and stepping off the ship and onto the ice from time to time to explore the Arctic up close. But there's also important research going on on board. A group of scientists are studying the effects of climate change, its rapid progression already visible in the far north. In fact, the Arctic is warming at an alarming rate, four times faster than what we've seen across the globe over the past 40 years. That's according to a recent study in the publication Communications Earth and Environment from this year. But it's not just the heat from climate change that's cause for concern. Diplomatic tensions have flared over the war in Ukraine, putting cooperation between these researchers and their Russian colleagues on ice, as it were. Sven Weniger and Jörn Freienhagen have more. Their report is presented by Anke Raspa.
2: waves break on the bow of the Commandant Charcot, a small flock of kittiwakes, seagulls with yellow beaks and black feet – follows the ship. The grey-green mountains behind us gradually fade away, and the swarboard archipelago disappears into the mist. In front of us lies the vast Arctic Ocean. Water. Nothing but water. The Svalbard archipelago is part of Norway. With an area of 60,000 square kilometres and only about 2,500 inhabitants, it is one of the northernmost areas on Earth inhabited by humans. Most people here live in the town of Longyearbyen, with its harbour and colourful wooden houses. The treeless mountain ranges and their few snowfields look as if they've been sandpapered. Wide canyons are what's left today of the huge glaciers that formed the land here over millions of years. Most of them have retreated long ago. We're at 80 degrees latitude here, just a few thousand kilometres of water and ice to the North Pole. The Arctic Ocean that encircles the pole is almost one and a half times the size of the European continent. The Commandant Charcot, or CC for short, has set off from Longueben on an extraordinary expedition. The new French ship is the first icebreaker cruise ship of Western manufacture. It's a 150-meter-long motor yacht with a slender, light-colored superstructure on top of the compact azure hull with its massive bow. The -the state-of-the-art LNG and battery-powered ship is on its way to the North Pole with 126 passengers on board, including a group of international scientists. They were invited by the shipping company, Ponnant, to conduct climate research during the 14-day voyage. A unique opportunity, says Marcel Nikolaus.
0: Measuring ice properties, especially the thickness of the ice along a route from Spitsbergen to the North Pole, and doing it again and again, is of course of the utmost interest to us, because you rarely get to go there.
2: Marcel Nikolaus, a man in his late 30s with short hair and a three-day beard, is a sea ice physicist and climate researcher at the Alfred Wegener Institute, Helmholtz Center for Polar and Marine Research in Bremerhaven in Germany.
0: I mainly work on sea ice, that means the frozen ocean and snow, and I research how it's changing in the Arctic and the Antarctic
2: and what significance that has for our climate. That's why the ship has two labs and a special device, known as the Sea Ice Monitoring System, SIMS for short, to measure ice thickness. We have an electromagnetic system
0: hanging about five meters in front of the bow. It consists of two coils on the right and left. And these two coils create an electromagnetic field. And this induces a response field in the water. And depending on how far away the water is from it, it is larger or smaller. And now the sea ice comes into play. Sea ice is much less salty than the salt water below it. and the bottom line is that we measure the distance to the salt water. So if we now have two meters of sea ice at the top of the ocean, the salt water is, so to speak, two meters further away. And if we measure at the same time the distance with a laser from the top of the ice, then we get two distances, the distance to the top of the ice and the distance to the bottom of the ice. And the difference determines the ice thickness.
2: The scientific team also includes a German geophysicist as well as a Canadian plankton expert, a French climate researcher from the European Space Agency ESA and a scientific drone pilot. After five days at sea, the CC has worked its way into the pack-ice of the Arctic Ocean. First east and past the Russian Franz Josef Land archipelago, and then north to the North Pole, through the thin ice that's formed over the past year. The ice forms each year north of the Siberian coast, and then drifts westward, across the North Pole, towards Greenland, driven by the so-called Transporter Drift. During the journey, the ice keeps growing steadily. Avoiding massive ice is one of the basic rules for Arctic sailors, says Ger-Martin Leinebø, the Norwegian ice pilot on board.
3: The first rule is stay away from the ice as far as possible. Find the weakest part in the ice and avoid the big ridges. The big ridges is our enemy in the ice. The the ice, when they have built up many stages, then it's very hard to come through. It could be 10, 20 meters depth. So it's very, very hard to to come through it.
2: That means sailing about 500 kilometers out of the way. But the direct route from Svalbard to the North Pole through thick perennial ice would cost far too much energy. And you can even get stuck, says Leineböe, who usually works as a captain for the Norwegian Coast Guard. He points to a satellite map of the pack ice.
3: We chose the route, if you see here, I can show you a little bit. The last two months we have followed the ice condition every day. And we found this channel here, and we planned the route to go through. The yellow part is the first year ice, and the brown is the old ice. So if you have gone a little bit more to the west, it has been much harder to come to the North Pole and maybe we have to stop and try another way, and even at the east side is also multi-air ice. So we plan to go through the channel where there was first air ice and so far it has been a success.
2: When it comes to navigating ships, as far as communication is concerned, things become quite tricky, especially north of the 88th parallel, because from here, the satellites are very low on the horizon. It's also difficult for climate research. In the Arctic, temperatures have warmed nearly four times faster than the rest of the world in recent decades, meaning ice loss is happening very fast. Understanding the reasons for this is one of the most urgent climate issues at present. However, because of the remote location, research on this is almost exclusively done by satellite. There are no land areas that could be used for field observations, only pack ice and drift ice. But satellites are of little use for measuring ice thickness and consistency, say both ice pilot Leinebö and sea ice physicist Nikolaus. A satellite image simply can't show enough of what's important to the scientists.
3: It doesn't, it doesn't, but you can see the ridges on the uh, satellite image. So where the, the ice are built up, ridges, and then you can see it, but not the thickness of the ice. It's very difficult.
0: We have to keep reminding ourselves that the images that look so perfect, which we get from the satellite maps or as model simulations, they are based on a lot of assumptions. None of the satellites flying up there directly measure the thickness of the ice. What this really means is that we need to measure this ice right on the ice. We measure with instruments similar to those flying above us, here on the ice, and then we find algorithms conversion formulas if the satellite measures this and that then it means this and these data we are constantly trying to improve and to be able
2: to do that we have to come here this continuity is a unique opportunity for this expedition adds Steffen Graupner since it helps to create a measurement profile in time and space Both Nikolaus and Graupner were also members of the year-long and now-famous International Arctic Expedition Mosaic of the German ship Polarstern in 2019 and
4: 2020. Each time we measure the profiles in the area between Longyearbyen to the North Pole and back. And that happens roughly every fortnight. The idea is just to see how the ice surface changes. And the second goal is the buoy program. We have just set up one of the boys. It's this one here in the corner. We have three of those with us, and we're going to deploy one of them on this voyage. And the other two I'll try to set up at the North Pole. And then we'll see if they survive the summer or if they break through the ice and how long we can gather data with the boys.
2: The pack ice around the North Pole is constantly losing volume because of climate change and rising temperatures. Sea ice in the Arctic has decreased by almost half in the last 50 years. Every year the ice surface decreases by another 8 percent. The ice is melting so fast that the Arctic Ocean is going to be completely free of ice during the summer much earlier than anticipated. Instead of 2050, as previously thought, It could be as early as the 2030s. But on this voyage, things seem less dramatic at first glance. The water areas have become smaller, the areas of ice larger. Unlike in winter, when thick pack ice blocks pile up, mounting to high ridges of press ice, the sea ice now appears from the ship's outer deck to be an endless expanse. Sometimes there are football field-sized ice floats with almost straight edges, separated by water channels. At other times there are ice clumps, jumbled together like milk foam in a gigantic coffee cup. Sometimes the ice looks like white and pale blue shards, like cracked porcelain. The sea in between ripples only slightly despite the strong wind. The drift ice lies like a lid over the water. Here and there, on the drift ice, turquoise pools of meltwater have formed. On the way to the North Pole, the first goal is to arrive. The CC is constantly on the move. The wind blows from the north, driving the summer ice apart towards the south. That's helpful for the ship, whose massive bow easily breaks through the 1.5 or 2 meter thick flows and pushes them aside. At 89 degrees north, the ship's helicopter is loaded with instruments for the first time. Then, the scientists fly ahead to an ice floe, selecting a suitable landing spot from the air that the ship will pass in about an hour. Afterward, drone pilot Laurent Cognier reports back.
5: We had about one hour to work and then The boat will join us during this hour. We had to uh, perform a kind of pattern with the drone in order to perform several photographs, about 300 photographs of the ground, in order to uh, see the the ice thickness above, just at the limit on the ice flow and the water.
2: The lean ex-military man from Marseille is here to film surfaces and scan ice maps with his special equipment.
5: Here it's quite difficult to fly drones in such regions because we have problem with uh, compass because as you know the magnetic pole is not very far from the geographic pole so the compass in the machine doesn't work very well. The second thing is with GPS positioning system because of the curvature of the earth all satellites are very very low on the horizon. And you have not a good positioning. The third one is that in that region we have very strong winds and very strong gusts. To fly a drone with this death, all this condition is quite dangerous, if I can say. What w- you have to know is that when the drone is landing, is uh, supposed to land on something that doesn't move. Then, except to cut off the engine, if you land on the ice flow, the so is moving, slowly, yes, but it's moving, and it feels it. The drone feels it, something is moving, so he doesn't accept to cut off the engine and try to gain altitude again because he thinks something wrong is happening. So I have to force him to land, but he doesn't want, so I have to fight against the drone.
2: Pilot Kanye is an expert in Arctic terrain. Flying drones here requires special knowledge and skills. Balancing the work of the science team and the operations of a cruise ship is a logistical feat. The cruise ship's itinerary has to be adhered to. And at the same time, it stops for seawater sampling, setting down buoys and drone operations have to be incorporated. Helicopter flights have to be coordinated with the route. The researchers are always on standby and ready to immediately take advantage of every opportunity that presents itself. They're on standby for 24 hours, because now, in midsummer, it's daytime around the clock in the far north. Daphne Bouiron is a trained glaciologist and Ponon's science officer. She's in constant contact with the bridge of the CC.
6: Yes, it's big coordination work, because we try to have good communication with passenger about what is happening. And all the logistics staff around and help for the technical uh, issue as well. So it's like a big, uh, various job.
2: Daphne Buron also coordinates the lab work on board. The two lab rooms are each about 40 square meters. The equipment is available to all researchers. Both the wet lab and the dry lab are located in the belly of the ship, directly above the waterline. The noise of machinery roars in the corridors.
6: So now we are in the wet lab. So it's one of the two rooms for science, the one where we can be wet. It's the one where you have the a door that opens directly on the outside. So if we want to launch some boys or if we want to collect some water, we can from here. And you have two big uh, fridge, one with minus 20 temperature and the other one is minus 80, is to be able to store some uh, precious samples uh, for the scientists and they want to keep it cold. And uh, on the left, you can see this uh, big uh, box with a lot of instrument inside running by itself. Uh, It's called a fairy box. It has been designed uh, to able to be on any opportunity ships, not only tourism, but also like commercial ships or fishing ships uh, everywhere in the world to collect data, simple data about temperature, salinity and oxygen.
2: On July the 14th at 6.07 p.m., the time has come. 344 men and women on board the CC become members of the exclusive club of people who have reached the geographic North Pole. The cheering on the bridge drowns out the high-pitched sound of the onboard GPS, which strikes 90 degrees north exactly. At a very slow pace, the captain has manoeuvred the antenna of the 150-meter-long motor yacht exactly over the imaginary point that's only a few meters across that marks the pole, and then switched off the engines. So this is where the Earth's axis would come out of the pack ice that surrounds the ship in huge flows all the way to the horizon. No markings on the ground, no flag, nothing. In 2007, the Russians sank a Titan pennant on the seabed at a depth of over 4,000 meters to mark the North Pole, but there's no visible spot above the water. So imagination is called for. Everyone can choose their own North Pole ice flow. Is this the magic spot? Just a few moments later, it will be another point, since the pack ice of the Arctic Ocean is constantly on the move. At this point, passengers are allowed to leave the ship and explore the ice. During our voyage, we are often surprised how warm it is near the North Pole during the summer. Data on wind, air pressure, and outside temperature are measured and appear daily on the onboard monitors. Most of the time, it is only a little below zero degrees Celsius. Yet the wind is merciless and pushes the wind chill index, the perceived cold, down to minus 14 degrees. The thin blanket of drifting snow quickly melts as people walk over it. However, the snow also hides deeper dens in the ice. So we suddenly sink into these holes up to our knees. Marcel, Nicolaus and the others are immediately back in research mode. Near the ship's bow on the ice, they operate their equipment.
4: The uh, metal boards, here uh, for us,
0: These metal drills in front of us, the shiny ones, the spirals that look like thick, normal drills people usually use, they are about a meter long. And with these, we drill holes to measure how thick the ice is. We also have these large ice core drills over here. They're cavity drills. That means once I've drilled, I get a bar of ice left in the middle of this drill, and I can take that out and cut it into pieces to study. For example, we measure how much salt there is and the temperature. You can also melt it and see what lives in it. Oben kommt
5: das Verbindungsstück zum Akkuschrauber dran.
4: Yes,
0: here we showed the people on board how porous this sea ice is. See, when salt water freezes, that means the fresh water freezes. And the salt it contains accumulates in so-called brine channels and brine pockets. And they're all connected. So we went to the kitchen here on the ship and got some orange food coloring. We dissolved that in the water and then dripped this orange water on top of the ice core. And now you can see very well how the core soaks up the color and how it flows through there. If we had done the same thing with freshwater ice, the colored water would have stayed on top, frozen solid, or it would have run down the sides.
2: Passengers are encouraged to take an interest in what the climate researchers are doing on board. That's why they give lectures on various scientific topics and also demonstrate their fieldwork.
0: We did a lot with the passengers today. The people drilled ice holes themselves, tried out this thing with the colours, measured the thickness of the ice and got a feeling for how polar research actually works.
2: Polar research stopped running smoothly in February 2022, when Russia attacked Ukraine. The political crisis also had a dramatic impact on the close research cooperation between Russia and the Western countries in the Arctic Ocean, which had been growing over decades. The scientists are frustrated. Previous research benefited a lot from international cooperation. And the year-long mosaic expedition that completed in 2020 with 500 scientists would have been impossible without the Russians.
0: Yes, we lost a lot by losing the cooperation with Russia they have a great deal of expertise in sailing through sea ice and that is missing now it's missing on the logistical side but of course it's also missing on the scientific side because there's a lot of expertise there too you just have to look at the russian coast in the arctic basically half the arctic is surrounded by russia
2: geophysicist stefan graubner who spent several years on russian research icebreakers agrees
4: There is a Polar Research Institute in St. Petersburg called ARI, the Arctic and Antarctic Research Institute, along with incredibly well-trained people. We cooperated on various projects. And all that is cut off now. I just got a WhatsApp from a Russian colleague who said that there is a new law in Russia that makes contact with foreigners and the exchange of data with foreigners a punishable offense for Russians. That's the situation now in Russia. It all reminds me very much of the GDR era, where I grew up in Germany. So it would me all very much an die DDR erzählen, where I grew up in Germany.
0: I it's einfach erschreckend. I simply find it frightening, and I'm very sure that it will take a very, very, very long time, even if the political situation is normalized again, to get back to the previous level of understanding, trust, and cooperation.
2: Russia's war and the mutual sanctions between East and West have massively torpedoed the common goal of stopping climate change. Former partners and colleagues are forced to mistrust each other. They no longer talk let alone exchange knowledge. So it seems like an emotional liberation when we meet the Russian ship Pedisyat Babedu days later. The ship's name means the 50th anniversary of victory, and it's the largest nuclear icebreaker of the Russian state-owned company Atomflot. Its home port is Murmansk. From a distance, the brawny, fiery red ship looks like a dinosaur of polar shipping. Steffen Graupner has often travelled aboard.
4: I've seen a lot on these Russian icebreakers, both conventional diesel-electric icebreakers and nuclear-powered icebreakers, where a lot of things work very well and they've developed different concepts over the years. But of course, the ships we used in Russia are technically from the 1970s. Compared to that, it's a quantum leap to be on this ship now.
2: The captain of the CC asks the Russian icebreaker over the radio if they want to meet. And sure enough, just 10 minutes later, the Colossus roars up and stops four points to starboard, less than 100 meters from our bow. And then it starts. (laughs) Cheers erupt on both sides. Crew and passengers jump up and down on our helideck. We wave French flags, laugh like children. Everyone is exuberant. There are beaming faces on the bridge, too. On the other ship, the same thing happens. The outer decks are full. Blue flags greet us. Both icebreakers sound their ship's horns. It's like a brief fraternization on neutral territory, a ray of hope in the madness of world politics. Rarely have we seen so many happy faces on board. Then the nuclear icebreaker turns away and departs at a brisk pace. And something that our Norwegian ice pilot, Geir martin Leinebö, said sticks in our minds.
3: When we are at sea, then everybody has a sea band.
1: Sven Weniger and Jón Freienhagen with that report. It was presented by Anke Raspa. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. And now a brief message from DW's Environment podcast, On the Green Fence.
0: Are you worried about the state of our planet? Me too. I'm Neil, host of the On the Green Fence podcast, and to me it's clear we need to change. The solutions are out there, but where do we start? Join me for a deep dive into the green transformation and what it means for me, for you, for the planet. On the Green Fence, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out the Media Center at DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions for us, just drop us a line at, at com. This week's show was produced by Wiebke Tegtmeier and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineers were Sören Leutfeld and Yusuf Dudayev. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.